Hi, I'm Taku and welcome to the show. You're in for a treat. This episode is very special because it was recorded live with a studio audience and it's so much fun and I hope you enjoy it. If you want to stay in touch and hear about more live events, we are at twowordswithtaku.substack.com and that's where you'll find all the updates. Now on to the show. Welcome to Two Words with Taku. I'm Taku Mbuzi and I'm a writer. This podcast is about writing, storytelling, and it's a podcast for people who haven't quite made it, who are in the trenches, who are doing the work. But it's a way for us to support each other, see each other, hear each other, lift each other up, because um, that's the only way that I've started to really blossom and find the confidence and the joy to do this. So today on this episode, I am really, really honored to have two special guests on this show. I'm gonna start off with Esther. Esther Fwati is an actor, producer, writer. And currently she has a YouTube series called No Ordinary Love. That has got thousands of views. That is just, it's just incredible work that she has written, directed, produced, and acted in, and done the graphic design. <clears throat> Wait, and done the digital marketing strategy. And she's, eh. <clears throat> right? Esther, I first met Esther maybe 10 years ago when I came to Melbourne because I was trying to be a doco maker. Hey, where's that footage now? <laughs> but Esther is so supportive, so kind, so generous, and welcome to the show, Esther. Thank you. And the other person I'd like to invite is Ratizo Mambo. Yes, make some noise, you might already know of her. But, you know, all her accolades aside, Rajizo is just big love, big love. She is an actor, producer, writer, who's been involved, uh, I think, with more than 30 plus feature films, short films, podcasts, theatre productions, um, does the whole Australia Hollywood life and is just yeah, both of these women have been so supportive in my journey as a writer-producer here. So I'm so thrilled to have you. Oh my gosh, we're on stage together. That's crazy. That's crazy. I'd like to ask you each, if people had to describe you or what you do in two words, what would you say? <laughs> oh, God. The, the first joke that comes in my head, I always think of Yvonne and Dory's thing where she says, uh, a jester. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Well, like I said, she's big love. <laughs> I think you are big love. And Esther is, oh yeah, Esther, what, what would your two words be? I think my two words would be creative chaos. Oh. 
Ooh, that's good. Mm. Audience, if you want to have a think about your two words, how people would describe who you are, what you do, what you represent, just, you know, something to sort of simmer on. That would be, yeah, really great to share a bit later on. So uh, if you could tell us a little bit about, uh, I guess, how you ended up being the actor or the performer, or the creative that you are. We'll start with you, Ratazo. Oh. Tell us a little bit about how did you end up here? Um, so I'm Zimbabwean, uh, Australia now, Australian, so Zimbabwean, Australian. I I started acting when I was a, a child. <laughs> um, so I've been saying I'm a child actor, but it sounds like I'm saying I'm a child right now, still acting. Um, but in a way, I guess that's still what acting is. Um, I've been acting since I was 10 and um, started acting in Zimbabwe and then um, carried out to Australia, went to drama school here in Australia, drama school, business school. And then I worked in film and TV distribution business for a little bit because um, I wasn't getting work for reasons we shall talk about. Um, and then I moved to LA and I lived in LA for about eight years, um, pounding the pavements and then came back to Australia working. And yeah, so, and still working, trying to work. So it's hard to summarize because I've been doing this since I was 10 and I'm still at it. <laughs> I think that's a great summary. Yeah. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have heard of Ratizo, seen her work? Um, yes. Or Googled her before you came. Yeah, great. How awkward. Close your eyes. Um, <laughs> Feel one hand Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, just like, who? Uh, yes, so uh, I know Ratizo from growing up in Zimbabwe. She was in a film called Yellow Card, which was about, uh, you see, all the Zimbabweans are like, mm -hmm. <laughs> And I remember I wasn't allowed to watch that film when it came out. My mother was like, no, 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 no. The girl gets pregnant. Nah, you're not watching it. it and yeah, it takes a top off. <laughs> and I remember just watching, or we knew of that film. Mm. Um, and because I also used to try and do drama and theater and I used to do Stitford's, she was the one that I didn't like because like, how did she, how did she get in? How come her parents are cool enough to let her do that? <laughs> and skip what, 20 plus years later for me, um, I had an announcement about my film come out and she was one of the first people to reach out. I, I had never met her and she's like, this is amazing, oh my gosh, like if you need anything, just I'm happy to help. And she, she has been a great mentor and supporter uh, making this film. So we'll, we'll come back to you, but let's, um, let's jump to Esther. Esther, what about you? How did you end up being this writer, actor, multi-hyphenate yeah. of this? Fantastic YouTube show. Yeah. Um, so I was born in Zambia, cousins, <laughs> and grew up in Australia. I grew up doing dance. So that was like my pathway into the creative. I did hip hop, ballet, contemporary when I was younger. My, my dream, my life's goal was to be a backup dancer for Justin Bieber and nothing else. <laughs> and <laughs> it took me a while to let go of that dream. Nothing else. <laughs> nothing else. But um, I think through the dance um, circles, I auditioned for this theatre play in Footscray. I, I got into it and that's sort of like, it like gave me a taste of acting. So I went and studied for a year. I did a, a short course. And then a lot of my teachers were like, if you want to work, you have to create. So, so yeah, it was just a logical step into creating. That's how I got into production. 
Um, but then all the other creative stuff, all of the design, the marketing, the graphic design, that's what I studied at school to make my parents happy so that I could do acting pretty much. Yeah, and that's me. And so could you each tell us about the current projects that you're working on or have just done? So maybe, so you can tell us about Sunday mm. and then Esther, you can tell us about No Ordinary Love. So we'll start, we'll start with you. If you could tell us a bit about Sunday, um, the show, and then your role in it and oh. how you came to it. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm currently doing a theatre show at the Melbourne Theatre Company called Sunday and it's a Melbourne show. Um, it's a show about, <laughs> uh, about artists, um, from the 1930s, 40s and 50s. So it's kind of like a period piece kind of production play. Um, and I'm playing a woman, um, an, an Australian woman called Joy Hester. And I'm only laughing. I'm giggling because I look nothing like Joy Hester. <laughs> She's a, um, uh, she was an artist. Uh, she was a painter. She was a, uh, like a pencil drawer and a poet. Um, I got cast in that show about two years ago. And before that, I did another show at the Melbourne Theatre Company called The Heartbreak Choir. So it's been, yeah, maybe two years of doing theatre on main stage theatre in Melbourne, um, even though I'm coming based in Sydney at the moment. Um, re basically representing a certain kind of artist, artistry, whether it's music or, 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 or painting. But this current play, though, is interesting because um, it kind of looks back on artists and who gets to kind of own your voice and philanthropy mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, and an and, and artist, you know, because I think we're living in this world where you create something and people who are your managers or agents or people who pay for, which is the modern version of it, who pay for your art, you get to keep it. But in the 1940s, um, when people didn't have money, you relied on philanthropists or patrons to pay for your artwork. So it's a very Australian show because, you know, the biggest Australian painters were our, our Van Goghs, uh, were the Sydney Nolans, Albert Tucker, Joy Hester, John Percival. Um, so that's what that show is about. And my coming into the show was because I got cast by this beautiful director called Sarah Goods. And I remember asking her and saying to her, wait, I'm a black African woman about to take on a very famous, well-known female painter. Um, is this part of a woke kind of like <laughs> casting? Because I know that's what the age is going to write about. But um, all the newspapers, um, just judging by what's been happening in, the, um, in Australian media and theatre. Um, but I think what was so beautiful about Sarah, she was like, look, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fantasy, it's a fictionalised version on a real story. And me coming into the into the show itself was about Joy's spirit and her energy and the type of woman who she was. And I'm very much um, aligned to who this woman is, um, uh, who sacrificed everything that she wanted to do, well, well, everything that she wanted, which was to be an artist. Uh, she gave up family, gave up um, community, gave up, um, uh, gave up a love for another love. And I think that kind of summarizes who, who I've been as an artist as well. So it was beautiful being seen um, and being cast um, based on spirit and energy and based on uh, characteristic. Uh, so yeah, so that's the show I'm doing right now. And it's been going on for the last five weeks and yeah, it ends soon. Are there any tickets left for Sunday? It is sold out, oh, <laughs> which is a beautiful thing. Um, yes, it's sold out until mm -hmm. closing night. Um, 
But yeah, it's a very Melbourne show. It's interesting doing a show that's very Melbourne. Um, and I, I kind of grew up in Melbourne, but I didn't grow up, grew up in Melbourne. So it's interesting doing a show about Melbourne and the audiences I've been coming out to watch it and people who, from every background, have recognised, because it's all about this museum called Heidi, which is out in Heidelberg. So it's been interesting seeing um, people from all generations who've kind of come across that kind of art world and gone to Heidi and who've had rumours about, you know, Sunday and John Reed, um and wanting to find out more about the art world and who this woman is, because she's she's a very in our in our modern term we'll probably call her feminist, um, but she was a woman of her time. Um, but it's been an amazing production to be part of, um, an Australian story, and then finding someone like myself being allowed to have a piece of that world, it's kind of exciting and hoping that's where more Australian theatre and productions, the direction that they'll kind of head into, where you don't mm -hmm. just because majority of roles I got in Australia were just African roles and doing roles with accents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. yeah. I, can, I have to say, you are the best audience ever. You know, when, I, when I've been doing this before, just the mmms are giving me life. I would just like to give a shout out to Nyasha right here because I'm telling you, girl, my, your expressions are just giving me life. Thank you so much. I, it's, oh, it's the cocktails. Great. So, yes, cocktails. Uh, yeah, I, I had the pleasure of watching this show this week and... I texted Ratizo a picture afterwards. I just drew like a big square and then I just drew like a, a, a little pin in the middle. That was me. Imagine a glass of milk and you drop one chocolate drop right in the middle. <laughs> so it was a very interesting experience being in that audience. And it's a phenomenal production because I, I was aware of the story and it's theatre, it's you know stage design, it's all that stuff that tickles me because I, I studied architecture so anything to do with space and moving things I'm like ah and then yeah seeing Ratis on stage just in her full glory mm. I just I just wanted more I wanted more mm. of you I really deeply wanted more of you and so my question to both of you just leading on to that you talked about you were cast because of you embodying Joy Hester's mm. spirit and character does it work the other way around and why can't it because, <laughs> yeah, so, and I just asked that as a devil's advocate kind of question, because then there are people who'd be listening and going, well, then if you can do it, why can't we? Mm. So can, let's say, a white guy then come and play Shaka Zulu? <laughs> if he's embodying the spirit. <laughs> they already have. <laughs> yeah well yes i mean like so, yeah doing all the anything to do with egypt and stuff is being yeah like, yeah yeah but what what are your thoughts on that yeah the Esther. first thing that comes to my mind is i don't think we've had enough time to tell our own stories mm -hmm. the way that white creators have had so i think i think we need to deal with that first <laughs> before we can flip it the other way mm -hmm. if if that's possible. Yeah. I, well, yes, yes. Yeah, I think so as well. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you talked about at the beginning uh, about ownership of stories mm -hmm. and, and your artistry. I think this room is pretty much full of artists. There are illustrators in here. There are singers, mm -hmm. musicians. There are writers. There are filmmakers, producers. And yeah, I'm really interested in this topic around ownership of... Mm -hmm 
not just, oh, you know, I've got a story and I own it. Literally the financial ownership of our art and us actually benefiting from that. So mm -hmm. maybe Esther, you can tell us a little bit about No Ordinary Love mm -hmm. and then what that ownership journey has been like and is yeah. like. Yeah. So uh, No Ordinary Love is a K-drama inspired rom-com uh, web series. It's a five episode series on YouTube. Um, it just honestly came from me and my friends not getting the roles we wanted to get, like not getting the auditions we wanted to get. Very much like Rati, we were just getting the accented immigrants or the refugee or these these roles that weren't like they're, they're great to do. But if that's the only thing that the industry can see us as, it, that's that's a bit of a problem. So um, during COVID, I was just like, if there's anything, anything that I could do or be a part of, what would it be? And it's honestly just a K-drama rom-com, <laughs> like the, the, the funnest, silliest project. Um, so it's about a, an interracial couple, Hyono and Beck. Hyono is Korean-Australian, Beck is African-Australian, and they are just pretty much navigating, they, they broke up and they had a secret relationship. They're meeting back at um, Beck's best friend's wedding and they're just navigating why their, their relationship dissolved, um, dealing with all of the cultural issues surrounding an interracial relationship and then also just the personal issues as well. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was my first, first step into production. <laughs> first step into writing even though I've been writing since I was I was a kid and the important thing for me was really to have that financial ownership of the project I was very lucky that I had a producer who wanted to step on board and her heart was not to take my IP away from me not to take my ownership away from me but to empower me she um guided me through the process of starting a company and keeping my IP, all the, the legal um, aspects that are involved in that. And I really appreciate that because a lot of people in the industry don't consider that, especially for emerging um, artists. It's very easy to just be like, okay, well, you have a great story, but I'll take the ownership. So I really appreciate her guiding me through that. And it was right around the time that um, Michaela Cole her article came out about how she had wanted to um, have her series released with Netflix, but they were like, we don't do that. We don't, <laughs> you can't have any ownership in your story. You have to give it to us. And she fought for it and she went with, um, I believe it was a British, maybe the BBC or something like that. And she got to keep like a hundred percent or close to of the, the IP for herself. So yeah, I think it was just very empowering as a new creator to know that the industry is can be a safe space if you partner with the right people. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely um, second that. When I was making my film, so for those of you who might not know, I just recently produced a kids' film, Guguna Gugu, and it was commissioned by the ABC and Screen Australia, who gave us funding. And by us, I mean my own company that I formed one that I had to fight to form, one I had to fight to prove that I can run. Mm. It's my third business, but still along the way, there were so many times when I had to prove mm -hmm. that 
I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. As in, I know, I know I don't know everything, but that's part of me knowing what I'm doing. Yeah. And even at the beginning, when we first got the funding, I had applied with my company and then later they said, oh, actually, you know what? We're thinking we'll partner you with another production company to help you make it. Because one of the biggest things you'll find if you are trying to get into the screen industry is they need to know you've got the infrastructure to hold all that money. Mm -hmm. And I'm not shy about numbers because all of this is public information, but I, I received, I think we received $151,000 to make our short film. Mm -hmm. So they need to know you're not just going to take it and go off to Mallorca. Mm -hmm. But... Part of that is is like you have to set up that structure. And so even with this podcast, if you go back all my episodes, I talk about that walk, looking for the right lawyers, um, trying to find how do I start a production company, trying to find production partners, the writing process, the recruiting, the stories. So I've been doing this for five years, documenting this walk. And I finally made it. I've made something. Mm. And I've made something now and I can sit back and reflect on it the same way Esther is, the same way Ratizor has been on other projects because I know for each of these um, two people and for me, personally, like our fire is not just to be sitting up here like, hey, look at us, we're good, because we don't want to create in a bubble. We actually want everyone else to be part of this process. But because we've been in, we know what it actually takes. And so for me, my personal mission is I don't want to make stuff for myself. I want to see your stories. I want to help mm -hmm. you make your stories. I find joy in seeing other people win. And these two are the same. So, um, yeah, I just thought I'd just put that out there that mm -hmm. whatever you're doing, fight for ownership of your story, fight for ownership of your art, yeah. and fight to get paid for it. Mm -hmm. It's a hard fight, but fight for it because where you're going to end up is better than you going, eh, I can't even pay my bills or people are using and abusing, whatever. Just there, there's some fights now that we just have to have mm -hmm. and need to have. Yeah. And so just to, just to sort of go from being producers, so both of you are working on producing your own content, mm -hmm. this podcast is primarily about writing. So writing mm -hmm. the actual words that we end up putting on a podcast or an audio story or a, a screen. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk me through what that looks like in terms of how you process words as a performer versus mm -hmm. when you're writing the words? Do you have mm -hmm. different processes to working with and receiving and interpreting someone else's words. Mm -hmm. And then when you're writing, does that affect how you write for someone else to perform your work? Um, playing devil's advocate on the other end about um, ownership <laughs> of story. I've had to learn, um, and Taku and I have spoken about this many times in terms of like, um, sometimes not everyone's good at working by themselves. Um, and I think sometimes it's good to, so I'll just use myself as a, as a, well, my, the experience I've, I've had as a producer and as a writer. So I'll go from the writing aspect, um, being in Australia and the last three years, there's been this big influx of people wanting us to tell stories about the black and brown experience and funding government saying, step forward, come one, come all, we want to work with you. And there's been people who feel they were sidelined in telling storylines, even though it's only been like 3% of us stepping up and getting a bit of the funding. So you find that people approach you um, because you are diverse. Um, so I'm African, because 
Blue African and they want to be able to get funding. Mm-hmm. Um, or there are stories that they do want to tell genuinely and they have a beautiful perspective and they invite you to uh, to come and work with them on that. Um, where I've kind of gone through a couple of projects where uh, I think the experience that Esther had was beautiful because that was, uh, she had a producer who, uh, who wanted to give her voice as an emerging writer. I'm an emerging producer, uh, writer myself, where I had the same experience, but I said no to just having that person be the only voice on that project. Um, because I felt like my contribution and my ex- lived experience also mattered. So rather than just heralding one person to be the forefront and the face of this project, because the stories that we have and the experiences that I've I've know um, that I was adding and contributing to the project were a perspective that they didn't know or understand. So I think sometimes it's good to kind of know what your strengths and weaknesses are um, and not lead through ego. Because I know sometimes we want to do things um you know, uh, have just your name on a project, but this is a collaborative industry and a lot of people work really hard if they are going to work hard with you. (laughs) Um, it has to be shared equal ownership, not just by name, work really hard to get projects to come up, you know, to, to get, uh, to get through the door. Um, and I know my, I have a pretty strong sense of self-awareness, um, which I had to learn by leaving Australia. So mine kind of worked backwards because when I was in Australia, because I came as a teenager, went to drama school, did kids TV here, and I'll be the kind of actor who would, um, you know, you're on a set and I can see they're trying to do lighting and I would think, oh no, it's me, I'm the problem because they're trying to overlight me and like I'm standing next to the the star of the show and so I need to kind of step back and solve the problem. So um, then I kind of disservice myself uh, by usually resolving situations for people where it wasn't my position to do that. But uh, all there'll be times where I could tell hair and makeup and um, certain jobs I've done where they had difficulty in terms of like the kind of language they'd use for me, um, meaning like they'll write an experience that was not authentic or organic to me or anyone that looked like me at all. Um, great to get the role, but it wasn't real. Um, so I didn't have a voice because you're just saying I'm lucky enough to have a job. So it's kind of working to that mentality of like, I'm getting a credit. And then living in America, I found that I found my voice because I was surrounded by people in all my scene study classes. Um, I was not ready to go to America. I say that on the aspect of not that I was ready to go there and start, you know, uh, uh, working in Hollywood, mm-hmm. I had to go to America to survive as an actor and keep my voice alive. Because if I had stayed in Australia, I would be taking two auditions a year. And I was, there wasn't really a drama school, um, uh, like 16th Street. So I went to this year and I did 16th Street as well. Um, and I was getting like, you know, the, the, uh, I want, you know, a lot of the famous Australian actors right now, you know, we all did kids TV show together. They were getting five auditions a week and I was getting three a year. So when you do get those three auditions in that year, you muscle each one and you're not natural, organic. This, it's got no reflection on your acting at all because you don't have, you're like, you're trying to get that job. So it doesn't come, you're not as skilled as your other colleagues. So the, the, there was a discrepancy in, in, in talent and discrepancy in um, 
there was no fairness. So I had to move to America uh, just to train more and learn more. But in those classes, uh, finding a room like this, I would see people with different body shapes and sizes and colors and who were so strong in voice, who owned who they were, who understood who they were. And I found my voice there. So fast forward when I came back to Australia, when people would ask me to be on projects, um, even though I'm like never produced anything, I'll be like, you know what? I know exactly what I'm contributing to this project. I want to be a co-producer, co-writer, co-everything, just so I could actually, you know, um, also have a voice mm. on this because I was contributing a very big voice that has been heard before. So in that aspect, that was my, that's been my kind of journey as a writer and, and I'm still on that journey of finding my voice and having ownership as an actor. Words that I get, I have dialogues with the writers and directors all the time. If I see writing, if I see language that's got, you know, um, you know that's got, that's not authentic, it's on my shoulders. Because literally in 2023, there's no one that looks like me in what I call main, like uh, an ensemble cast anywhere in Australia. Um, and it's sad because I love Australia so much and I really want more, you know, um, it's that we're having to create our own content. Mm -hmm. So I do find that I am casting shows. I do ask and writers have been beautiful, but I sometimes don't even think about whether or not they feel challenged. I just ask, I'll be like, well, love this play or love this show. But, um, I know my line says that, um, so when my parents in the 1940s were walking down the streets of London, well, my parents were not walking down the streets of London in the 1940s. <laughs> You know, um, can we change that? Because that's not authentic to who I am. Um, writers have been, that's been me finding my voice in the words that I've been given or uh, speaking up because I feel I'm representing a lot of people. Um, so that's been my journey in terms of finding my voice in both in the writing aspect and knowing what I contribute and having the value of what I feel I contribute to a project as a co-writer, as a producer, um, uh, as well as an actor in mm -hmm. trying to collaborate with writers respectfully, um, in the most authentic way possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm, that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's mm -hmm. a great sign. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and. What about you, Esther? What, mm. What's your experience been acting and writing? Yeah, I think very, very similar to Tarati in the way when you say it's about finding your voice. Mm. Um, I, think, I think my experience as an actor helped me approach being a writer and leading the writer's room in a way that was very actor-focused. So one of the first things that I knew I had to do when I had this idea I knew that I couldn't tell it myself. Like it's this, it's it's the coming together of two cultures. You know, it's the Zambian Australian, this Korean Australian. So I'm like, well, there needs to be Korean Australian representation from the beginning. Where I know that a lot of projects they don't consider that they'll they'll write an African, <laughs> an African Australian story by people who are not African, and you can tell like the words, the the experience is not the same. So. Early on, we got we had a writers team of um, myself, Helen Kim, and Mina Kang. Um, Helen and Mina are both Korean Australian, and um, we we wrote through COVID, which was which was good, which was fun. I was in Melbourne; they were in Sydney. We wrote um, over Zoom, but then once we got our actors on board, we did all of our auditions. I knew again that. Um, the story wasn't finished because now you're bringing on all of these actors who have their own personalities, their own lived experiences. 
um, it's one thing to to ask them to to play the characters, but it's something different. I think it brings something different to the characters when you allow the actors to to really bring themselves to that, to to say, hey, I like this character, but I'm thinking maybe this because that's that's something I relate to or that's something I went through. And so I sat down with each one of our um, actors on set and before before we started shooting and we just went through the script went through the characters and there was a lot that they changed there was a lot that um was highlighted that we hadn't thought about to begin with it was three girls writing this beautiful rom-com and then the main lead comes on and is like okay I love I love this but this is how I would talk to my mom about my my black girlfriend and this is how I would approach this this um reunion at the wedding so (laughs) it was good in that sense because we have blind spots this is like even if you're a different ethnicity a different gender you have blind spots to other people's experiences because you just you haven't gone through it so I think it's very important bringing in as many voices Mm -hmm so that you can get a much more authentic story, which I think we definitely were able to achieve in some part. Yeah, it's, it's, a, really, it's a really great show. If you haven't seen it, it's, it is on YouTube and <laughs> so delightful. I, I told her that, um, yeah, just watching it, it just, when I watch rom-coms and then they lean in for the kiss, I still squeal. I'm still like, <laughs> oh my God. And I was watching her, I was like, oh my gosh, she's actually doing that. and. It's funny because I was going to ask you both about kissing scenes. And I know it seems like a weird thing, but I think personally, as a writer, I think I still have places I'm scared to go. Mm. So like the sex scenes or anything that's got to do with intimacy where you got to go like, you know, go there. My question to you is how, how do you prepare for those scenes? I know we have intimacy coordinators these days and, um, you know, but I'm just curious because I think it's, something that might uh, you know, other people might find helpful or well, I would yes so um one of the reasons why I was very drawn to k-dramas is for that reason um just the the way that the storytelling is done and romance is done is in a way where it's very like you'll you'll go three four episodes and then finally the the main couple touch hands and you're like oh my gosh and then you wait another three four episodes and they kiss like the lightest peck and you're like yes so it's just like it's it's beautiful romance without it being overly sexualized which a lot of western shows can be like the first five minutes they're like in bed having sex and you're like oh okay we're we're into that um and so from an actor's perspective, um, definitely writing that into the the script, that slower paced romance, that slow burn romance was very important. But then having an intimacy coordinator, mm. like that as a performer, it changed the game. Mm. Like when I was doing my training, we, I don't know, it was sort of like the Wild West with that stuff. Even when you were doing scene work, mm. there was, there weren't a lot of guidelines or boundaries and so you, you just kind of like figured it out. But our intimacy coordinator, she was um, Shondell Pratt. She came in and she worked with the entire cast to build a bond amongst us so that we felt like we had a safe space with everyone. Everyone knew our boundaries. If we had any injuries, if we had any um, any places we didn't want to be touched, just things like that so that it really breaks down that wall and allows you to respect other people's body and personal space. 
Um, and then she worked individually with the couples and she broke it down in a way that it was very clinical and it took out any of the emotion. So you could actually do the work and not feel like, not feel like you could catching feelings. Yeah. Okay. You could go home at the end of the day and, <laughs> and just like switch off. And so that was really important, I think, for for everyone on set because it just allowed us to then have fun and play because we knew we were safe. We knew we had like the communication between us. If if anyone stepped over our boundaries, we knew we could speak up, which was incredibly important for the work. Yeah. Before you touched hands. Yes. Yeah. Before we touched hands. <laughs> 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 and and I'm looking at you because I watched Escape to Pretoria and how many of you have watched that movie? Yeah. And when I watched all I was like, she's kissing Harry Potter. <laughs> like that's all. She's, she's kissing Harry Potter. Yeah. So, and I think that's what people like probably think. So how was that for you preparing for that? And And the reason why I ask is because Yes, I'm being like a little schoolgirl, like, oh my gosh, but also because I think those are the kind of things that might freak people out. It's like, how can I be a performer who might be performing with someone at that level? Or how can I still keep myself safe? I'm kissing someone who doesn't look like me. Or like all these things. So I'm just curious what that was like um, for you or how you how you see it. It's probably just another day at work. <laughs> kind, of, it kind of was. Um, I think what, hap- what helped was um, there's something that you said that I found quite interesting. So I'm going to answer that. And I've got a flip around question for you. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I'll answer. It's a two-parter for me. Uh, for that. So for Escape for Batura was quite was kind of, that was easy. I think what helped was, um, look, it, it helped that because Daniel is the number one, what we call number one on the call sheet. Usually in big films, you have someone, whoever the star is, it's kind of their responsibility to make everyone feel comfortable on set. So you, everyone kind of follows their their energy. So they're intense, if the, the set is intense. Uh, and Daniel was quite, uh, um, uh, he was quite giving. But I think what helped me was uh, the fact that I got to spend a lot of time just hanging out with him, talking about Zim. Because he just had... He just, he's such an intelligent person where he'd read all these books about Zimbabwe and Africa and South Africa. And I remember my, so my introduction to him was me saying to him, um, so why are you doing a scare from Pretoria? It's kind of like another, as a joke, I made a joke about him being like, is this going to be another green book? You know, white guy saving. <laughs> and the way he responded to that was amazing because he was like, well, funny you said that because I was afraid. I don't want it to come across that way. And then he then went on to just reveal all this knowledge. And we had this healthy debate about South Africa and Zimbabwe. And he asked me all these questions. If I was a Shona tribe and Debele tribe, like he'd read this stuff. So that instantly made me feel comfortable. So then it felt like we suddenly became these colleagues who were for, you know, for days on end, just talking about stuff. So we became friends. So by the time the kiss thing happened, it's in such a heightened mode. It wasn't about the kiss. Mm-hmm. It was about trying to save a friend. Um, so I think sometimes in those things, um, intimacy things where you kind of replace, because in acting school, they always say kiss is never about a kiss. Intimacy is never about intimacy. It's always about a need. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that one was a need to try and save him. Uh, in other sex scenes, it's usually about what do I need from this person to feel calm, to feel safe, to calm them down. It's never about the sex. Uh, when you approach it as an actor, <laughs> professionally, that is. <laughs> 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 I like that character. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
you know, it's just never about that. But what I, I've actually had roles that to me was like nothing. I've had roles where it's been way more than that, which I will kind of speak to quickly. But the reason before I go and talk about that, um, my flip around question to you was as a writer, because I think that's where it starts. So you said as a writer, when I'm writing a kissing scene or a sex scene, uh, you're like, oh, I feel ooh. So if you were to write that and um, writing that, how would you approach that as a writer writing it? Because it has to be, it starts off with you before it comes to us to then authentically do it. Yeah, I think they say, you know, as a writer, you should write stuff that you don't know. Mm that's where the good stuff comes because you're not relying on your lived experiences. And so I still feel like I'm still learning and growing as a writer. So, so there are some things that I still feel a bit like shy about. And it could be my Zimbabwean church bring, you know, upbringing, Kuti. you know, mm. we don't talk about that stuff. We don't need to. So I think there's elements of stuff that I'm still working through, but I have that curiosity now that, oh, I think I think I want to share that stuff. I'm more likely to share it in, on stage in stand-up than to write in a story mm. that I'm going to put two people together to actually act out. And as a director, it's like, oh, really? I'm going to see people's parts? I don't know. So I think there's still things that I, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a maturity thing and not in the childlike maturity thing, but it's like a maturity of confidence in, in the story and mm. listening and learning. So asking mm. performers, like if I have a drama, a feature film, and then there is a sex scene, now I know how you approach it in my mind. Like, oh, okay, so Rati's not going to freak out that, you know, there's, you know, mm. three of them or whatever. Anyways, yes. Great. You went from like, I'm afraid to, yeah. it goes from, I'm afraid to write a kiss, but now it's a menage a trois. <laughs> I write fast, eh? Touching hands. Touching hands. It's the process. I write fast. I mean, thank you for being honest. The reason why I asked you that, because what usually would happen, especially for female characters, is there are scenes that people write, and you can tell the writer wrote it unconfidently. Because I'd be like, why is the sex scene in here? Because there are some scenes that don't need to be in there. So if the writer hasn't, hasn't, again, there's no need, there's no justification for me to take my clothes off or for me to smash bits with someone mm -hmm. in that story, does that need to be there? Is this a conversation? Is it a holding hands moment? Is it a mm -hmm. look? Is it a one word thing rather than it being something that is uh, visual that doesn't need to be there? Because, mm -hmm. yeah, cause that's yeah. why I was asking that yeah. question flipping as a writer because usually as actors, if you get it, you're like, oh, this is a great scene. But... You, you, I question that sometimes. I'll ask a director, oh, why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. um, or why is this scene? If it doesn't make sense. Because as, as actors, if, you, well, if you've read a lot of good scripts, you, you can sense where something does, it's, doesn't feel right um, for it to be in there. Uh, and then sometimes it gets canned mm -hmm. at all. And it doesn't mm -hmm. take away anything from the film or, or add anything. Sometimes, you know, you don't need to see it. Mm -hmm. um, but I've done stuff where, I mean, look, the joke being like from when I was four, no, yeah, when I was 16, 17, when I first did my first film where I did take off like my top, I was scared shitless because doing that in Africa and I haven't gone to an all girls school <laughs> at that time. So my mom did not give me permission, by the way. So it wasn't like I somehow tricked my mom into signing that. I don't, it's a long story. But my mom found out like everybody else in the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sorry mom and she was like she, she was like 
you know, um, and it was crazy. And by then I was already in Australia. <laughs> I didn't even go to my own premiere. Um, but my mom said no. But I remember the way that was handled on that set was amazing. So I was very blessed. I had a great um I had a great, you know, uh, mapping on how to handle that. Mm -hmm. Then fast forward to probably the biggest, most intense sexual role that I've ever had that, and I did it because I had to challenge myself as an actor, but also in desensitizing audience was when I did a show, I did a theater show, a two-hander um, called, called The Trials of Dorian Gray. And that mm -hmm. was a very sexual show where I had to take off. It was like the first 10, 15 minutes of this show in a, a theater a little bit bigger than this where me and this actor come on stage and we don't talk and all we did was it was basically everyone had to feel like they were flying the wall um mm. as if you didn't exist which is what theater is but this time you really had to feel like a fly on the wall where two people come in it's a wine I stand but we don't talk we're a bit shy it gives me whiskey and I don't know what to do with myself and then suddenly like things get sexual no one's talking and for 10 or 15 minutes, all we're doing was we're kissing and taking things off and groping and throwing. It was like watching Edison him. It was a lot. Mm. But the rehearsals <laughs> of that was like what Esther was describing. So I won't repeat what she was saying was very technical. It was choreographed. But for the audience, it was intense because it felt it was authentic every night. But we had to have an intimacy coordinator over maybe a week to talk about every single body part. Like, And he was married as well. So it was mm. certain things where he would be like, oh, I'm fine with my neck, but my wife, uh, that's her thing. Or she, she won't be comfortable with that. So it was a conversation that happened with him and his wife. Um, then when he came into the rehearsal room, he was comfortable with what they had discussed. So that's what the intimacy kind of, cause I'm, you know, I, I will, I'm not married. So it's usually in those scenes, it's like, yes, it's a professional actor on that stage, but there's sometimes three or four voices of people in that scene. Um, you know, we all joke about Mr. and Mrs. Smith because <laughs> no one wants their partners to leave them, dear Brad and Angelina, you know? So it was, you know, we had to talk about him and his wife and also, things that was comfortable for him and for his partner. Um, and then the rest was we could we could play. We really, we, we did play. And that was intense for me. But because we'd done the intimacy coordinator thing, it just wasn't sexual. Mm. Wow. I, yeah. I am today years old. <laughs> What's the phrase? Today, today. years old. <laughs> to learn, like, to just hear that is really, yeah, yeah it's really wonderful. Uh, because then it, it breaks down the myth. So even, again, coming back to the writing of how stories come together, how a film is made, just breaking that down breaks the myth of how we get these things done so that you can you could do it. You could do it. Anybody could actually write their own stories, perform these things without that fear that we see from afar and are scared before even trying or, or investigating. Mm -hmm. uh, now, before I throw it to the audience for Q&A, I was just going to ask you both about... This, um, this topic around the fear of scarcity and the fact that there's only so many few roles, I mean, so, so few roles for women like you or performers like you, and what your take is about your competition. Because mm -hmm. I think coming up, I, I know personally for me, I have struggled with it early on when I wasn't secure in myself or my voice, that I would see someone who was doing what I was wanting to do and be like, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and through making my stuff, trying, playing with other people, etc., I'm I'm fully okay with 
who I am now. And and so this this is great because I see you, I, I love and respect you. I want you to win. I know you want me to win. There's no weirdness. Mm -hmm. But I think there's still a lot of people who, um, yeah, are still trying to figure out, you know, how they can be the them. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm curious what your take is on on I guess maybe words of encouragement or wisdom or whatever for someone who might be listening who's like, oh, how? Right. Yeah, I think if any person who wants to come into the industry, they've got to have that drive and that passion within themselves because, you know, we, we do say there's like opportunities are far and few. So if you don't have that personal motivation, then it will be very difficult. I, I look at it as I understand that there's not a lot of roles, but I also understand that I have an individual path and what's for me is for me, what's for Rati is for Rati. And I can't do her roles, she can't do my roles. I can't wow. walk in her path. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> I can't walk in her path. Yeah. She can't walk in my path. And the that's helped me step into producing because mm. for a long time I would I and because Big Sissy has been working for a long time and getting so many amazing roles and there's so many talented African Australian actors in this industry doing amazing things and so I, I look at all of them and I'm just like oh my gosh like maybe I could do that maybe I should try this or maybe I should do that um looking at outside of me yeah. Because, hey, they're, they're getting the opportunities, where's mine? But I've, I've, I think, I don't know when, I've switched it to looking at who am I? What can I offer and what's my path? And that's what I think has let me lean into producing and writing because those are my strengths. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, there's some people who, who they get that big break from an audition and then they're Zendaya or... Angelina Jolie and then there's other people like Issa Rae or um oh, Abbott Elementary oh yeah Quinta Brunson. Quinta yeah. Yeah, yeah they create their own path and yeah. they create their own stories and so that's how I look at it now like what do I have to offer mm. this world because that's what's going to work for me that's beautiful yeah, yeah that's yeah. great do you have anything to add to that before we oh I don't <laughs> I mean look I just have to say that yeah. I, when I came back um, to Australia, I did this workshop where I met Esther. <laughs> so we did this, um, uh, I think we spent a week together, yeah. right? We, did, we spent a week together in Sydney at this acting workshop that Screen Australia, I think, put together. Mm -hmm. um, oh, wait, was that Develop the Developer? No, it was an acting thing. That's um, something else. It was, it was an actor's... Um, equity Foundation. It was, equi it was oh, Equity yeah. and Screen Australia. Yeah. And the reason why I bring that up is because, you know, it was so... I grew up in Australia not seeing anyone that looked like me at all. Mm -hmm. The only other women that looked were were similar type were biracial women, but someone that was dark-skinned, uh, there weren't many. But when we did that workshop, it was like I got so excited um, because I got to meet um, Esther and Morble. There was a lot of people who were in that workshop, other up-and-coming actors as well. Um, and it just happened to be four of us, so five of us. I think um, it was about six. Six, six black women in one room. And it was like yes. everyone was just chatting. It's almost like a week wasn't enough for us to keep talking. And that's why I met Esther and the hunger was so beautiful from Esther, from everyone else, the questions were asking. Um uh and being in those rooms were incredible and I loved it. Um 
But I remember coming back, the question that we're asking was, will there was a fear. I remember feeling there was a fear mm. um, of like, okay, I'm excited to meet everyone, but also, crap, everyone's kind of looks like me, so there mm. can only be one of us can ever get a role. <laughs> and I remember being like, you cannot think that way. So everything you just said, 100% right. But um, I don't ever think about scarcity because I feel like um, – um, Exactly. Like, I don't know. I can talk about this for hours because I've spoken about this. Talk. <laughs> um, you know, we are, you, we need to be more supportive of each other. You know, I'm sitting here based on the back and shoulders of many other black actors who have put my name forward. Um, other women have gone in for roles and been like, hey, I've just been called in for this. Um, has your agent um, given you this? Because I don't care if I don't get this role, but I hope one of us gets it. And that was the community that I belonged to when I was in LA for a while. And that taught me how to kind of like have each other's backs. Um, and I've tried to foster that here because I do feel, you know, we can't, uh, listen to this noise but I also acknowledge that the scarcity is not from the from within ourselves it's literally mm -hmm. it's looking at the industry like I said at the beginning of the podcast when you're seeing on television that you're not on there mm -hmm. and then when those auditions come or that one role comes up it's like pushing a boulder up a, a hill and it gets exhausting um but it is exciting that we are starting to write our own our own shows like I've got a show that 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 I wrote that's been acquired it's, that's to do with black women mm -hmm. um and trying to bring those stories to the forefront has been what's excited me about trying to you know work with so many people in Australia but you really have to find your own sense of self-awareness but I mm -hmm. also understand why people feel that way mm. and I, I was gonna say I can't remember what I read about that said something like the way the systems are set up at the moment is they they should they only think there's one mm -hmm. and so what it does is it's quietly makes us compete. Mm -hmm. But what I've now found, having been through the system, come out and been like, <gasps> we're actually sharpening each other. Mm -hmm. yeah. So having made something, suddenly I'm like, oh, you've been suffering too? Oh, you went through this too? And now we are sharpening each other. And before I was talking about ownership, right now that's my fight. Like, I'm like a bulldog. I want to own it. Mm -hmm. And then right here, I'll be like, chick, just chill. Like, <laughs> seriously, like there's this, there's that. And I really love and appreciate that about you because we do need those um, different voices that are gonna help us bounce off each other so each person can just make that choice to walk their individual path and then yeah. we're walking together. Yeah. So on that note, um, I would we, I just wanna say, I do want for all the performers here, if you can channel that energy of feeling scared and alone and feeling like competition, really collaborate. Again, it is a collaborative, community if there's a role there's some roles that I get I know they're not me at all I'll put I was telling us I put mm -hmm. other actors names up I don't just leave it I'll be like I don't I'm not gonna play this so and so can play this mm -hmm. so, I, so I would suggest because a lot of these producers don't know even though we're here they don't know Esther exists they don't know someone else exists so mm -hmm. I will I will put those names forward and if we did that for each other and we advocated as a team as a community and that's something that I really really would love us to foster more in a Australia is that spirit of collaborativeness and like you know um just whatever you can just you know yeah so mm -hmm. if you feel that for yourself flip it um and support other people mm -hmm. I'm into that hi I'm Toby I own and run a creative management agency oh. Um, firstly, congratulations. Everything you've said today is just amazing. And I love how much you are about radical collaboration. 
because I 100% see that as the future and how we can all push and nurture and support one another. Um, I guess for me, I'm curious about tall poppy syndrome. So you've <laughs> talked a lot about it, you know, briefly, but it's rife in Australia. And as soon as one person starts to, you know, grow, mm -hmm. someone else is there to try and cut them down. So how do you feel, I guess the question is to all of you, how do you feel like you, do you feel like tall poppy syndrome impacts you within your industry? And how do you feel like you can further support one another? Yes, working collaboratively, but how do you feel like you can challenge that stigma? My quick answer would be, um, I going to America took that out for me. So I don't feel that. I don't feel I, I own what I've done, what I've achieved. I carry it as a badge of honor. I, I mean, look, sometimes I get reminded by other Australians. Sometimes I can, the British Australians, I, I, I get shy, but I have worked really hard and I keep working hard. So I, 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 yeah. I will talk about my achievements and, Amazing. you know, I'll be like, yeah, I am working. So the, the, the thing that I was taught by a mentor of mine was um, you should always have talk up. There's always three things you should always have when you go to these mixes or meetings or creative spaces, always have something, um, you know, that you uh, talk about what you've just done, mm -hmm. what you're doing and what you're about to do which is very un-Australian because it feels like as if you're like this whole thing, oh, no, I'm working on nothing. Oh, just something small. Mm -hmm. In America, no one does that. You have the no. most least <laughs> talented people. <laughs> the un most untalented people will talk as if, and you're the most talented people in the room and you're feeling small in front of untalented people. I see, I've been to these Australian mixes, friends and film events with other Americans. And y'all know for a fact what that person is like, they're incredible and straight. They're not emerging. And they're behaving like they're emerging in a room full of people who have no credits. Yep. Um, because of that tall poppy syndrome. Yeah, and then they and they miss out on jobs, they miss out on like opportunities. No mm. one remembers them of things and they feel like nothing is happening. But learning that thing of being like, oh yeah, I've just done this. Even mm. it doesn't have to be anything big. You can be like, oh, I've just done a podcast on Sunday. I'm about to go and prepare for a job, an audition on Thursday. Uh, that's what I'm doing right now. So I'm auditioning today. And then next Friday, I'm going to be reading someone's script. It just shows that you're, you're doing something creative constantly. Mm. I completely agree with you. But yeah. how do Australians respond to you speaking like that? It was hard. It still is hard. Yep. Um, uh, I won't lie. It, it, it has been hard, especially as a producer, because I, what, what I've now seen is that the tall poppy syndrome is a time waster. Mm -hmm. So especially when I've run, I've, you know, writer's rooms or worked and done internships and whatever, I've found that sometimes with Australians uh, or culturally, or say even with us Africans, because we come from a British system, is that when you could have, we don't go on instinct. We don't voice our instincts, whether it's right or wrong. And usually our instincts are right. Yep. We don't say them. And then what the reason why I call it time wasting is because your instinct that you had on Monday, we spend all week trying to discover the answer, the solution, blah, blah, blah. But no one said it. And then two weeks later, you're like, well, I kind of had this idea. I'm like, oh, my God, you could have said that on Monday, mm. whether it's right or wrong. Even if it was wrong. Something in that idea could have been halfway right. It's part of collaboration. So, so, it, ta so it takes two weeks because people don't want to speak up, yeah. uh, which comes from small small things like you're paying $40 for a meal that you hate and you can't even mm -hmm. say, 
politely, oh, this is not okay. So starting from that small, (laughs) we can't even do that. (laughs) And it's never rude. It's just saying this is oversorted. There's a difference between being rude and assertive. We we think somehow it's rude and assertive. So where I've struggled is when I've genuinely been like, oh, I'm an artist. I don't have a lot of money. So this meal is oversorted. So if I want to speak up, it's it's my friends who shamed me into feeling like I'm, I'm complaining. I'm not grateful. Um, So I've had to find that I've had to fight within my own friendship group. Mm -hmm. Not their problem. It's just a societal thing. So starting from there and being like, actually, no, this is, I'm going to send it back because I know I'm a nice person. I'm not mean. And I said it nicely. I wasn't rude like the Americans. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was polite. So I think it's just a matter of just us encouraging each other by creating safer spaces to say, just speak up or just say something Mm. and not shutting them down. Um, Look, when it's cultural, it's hard to, I really feel you have to leave Australia to see it. It's hard to try and implement it or be like me and be brave because I try and encourage people or my friends are like, stop it. I I tell people in my circle, I'll tell them, Stop it right now. How are you still emerging after doing blah, blah, blah? Can you define what emerging is? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So. Great answer. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, I'm Amanda. I'm a co-host of a podcast. It's Laird. My question is a two-parter. Nowadays, obviously, social media, people feel their voices need to be heard, which is great in one aspect. But as creatives how do you handle negative responses or negative comments personally and professionally Mm -hmm. and also do you pay any heed Mm -hmm. like if if it's like tips you know Mm -hmm. you spoke about the age and maybe they'll say write an article about you and that's the only way we used to get feedback before but now we get feedback from everyone how do you handle that Mm. I think I don't know if it was Brene Brown who was saying that when it comes to taking advice, um, take advice from people that you do life with. So having mentors, your family, those who are close to you, and also close mentors in the industry, I think those are the people whose word should matter the most rather than comments on social media or even articles in the press. Um, Because I think those people, when they're giving constructive criticism, they'll do it from a place of love and you can trust that. Um, so yeah, I think that's very important knowing your tears, tears of circles. So like you're in a circle to the outer circle and knowing who's speaking what into your life and why. And so, yeah, that, I think that comes from the relationship that you have with those people. So social media and press, I would say for the most part, like, even if it's good stuff. Have you had any with your podcast? Oh my so gosh. podcast are with your, <laughs> my series. Oh my gosh. You guys, like one of the first comments <laughs> was about black hair and makeup they were like who did your makeup and hair we need to we need to do better for black women like the representation yes usually from yeah and i was like oh my gosh i failed our people (laughs) (laughs) i was like and then i was like look i can either be down about this or i can go to my team like that person who commented that, they don't understand the process it went through to find a makeup artist, mm. to find a black makeup artist mm. and hairstylist. They don't know all the things that were involved and they also don't understand that it's only up from here. Like we, this was a starting point 
and we're learning and we're growing. So if I had taken that on board, I would have been like, I'm never like, I can't be on TV anymore because my edges were not laid. <laughs> like, like I had layer ages in Australia. Australia. <laughs> we just do that. It's cultural. Oh. It's cultural. <laughs> but I was expecting that. I was like, if any comment, it will be about my hair or makeup. But yeah. Hi, I'm Charity. I'm not a creative. Um, but I love thinking I'm one deep down inside. Um, <laughs> my question to you is about, um, to all three of you actually, is around systemic change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've been listening to you talk about the representation, talking about scarcity, talking about what you, your journey and overcome, what you've had to overcome. So I guess I'd like to hear about how you see systemic change in your industry. Like, do you see yourself... I don't know what the the Australian version of the people who decide the Australian version of Oscars. You can tell I'm not even in this industry, but let's go with it. Logies. Oh, those things. Yes. Do you get on a board for that? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. The decision makers in art, um, in the art world. Like you know, I've been to events where I'm like, I'm literally the only black person here, and the awards are only going to. Then you know to people who don't look like me. So yeah. question again, how do you infiltrate? How do you, how do you get representation at those tables? Mm. Are you interested in getting representation at those tables? Mm. Like what are the pathways? I know that's a loaded mm. question, but I'm right. curious to hear what you guys think about mm -hmm. that. Thanks for that question, Charity. I, I definitely will say you have to know who, who you really want to fight for. And I, I am very passionate about children and children's stories and children having a voice to speak. I have a three-year-old daughter. And so me making a film for kids was because I was saying, I, I mean, there's nothing for our child to watch and lots of other children to come and out there. So for me, I've always been passionate about young people. And so for me, when I was making this film, I was working with people who cared about the awards. They cared about how it would look, how it would be received. We should get this person to be on the team instead of this person. And in fact, the biggest fights I had that had me crying, breaking down, were for people who weren't shiny or aiming for the awards. So it starts from fighting for your people or, or trusting your gut that that person actually has never done it before, but I'm telling you, they're going to blow your mind. Mm -hmm. And every single person on this project did that. In fact, Louis right here is an illustrator. He drew the images, the, the artwork that are in my film set. The little girl's bedroom mm -hmm. has black us at astronauts, us, astronauts. No, but I literally was like, I'm making a, a, a film about a black Zimbabwean astronomer. Mm -hmm. I want her to have pictures of black astronauts. Mm -hmm. How do you say that word? Astronaut, yeah. Astronauts. Astronauts. On Astronaut. her wall. Who do I know? Kenyan-born Louis. Louis, dude, draw me. You should see the pictures he drew. Mm -hmm. You should see the pictures this guy drew. But I had to, <laughs> I had to fight. I had to fight to say some of these people don't have credits. But I, I know he's my brother. Mm -hmm. So it starts from know who you want to fight for, know who you want to fight with, and then everything flows from there. And now I've made this film and I'm part of, um, it's called the Australian Children's Producer. We're a lobby group. Mm -hmm. So at a time when I had finished my film, I was mentally not well, 
came back from Zimbabwe, had this hostage situation, which I laughed about now, but it was really bad. Mm. I, I decided to go to Canberra to fight for our kids' stories to get recognition on the screens. I was the only black person with all these experienced Emmy-winning, Oscar-winning producers, but that's where the fight is, is that you don't do it for, you do it behind the scenes. You do yeah. it quietly, but the power is when you just, you know who you're fighting for. Mm -hmm. And I have such joy. Mm -hmm. So from that, now when I go, oh, so what happens if I'm not doing things for show or for awards? Now I can do this. Because yeah. mm -hmm. you know what? Even if this never comes out, like we have, we have sharpened each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how you change stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because now everybody's got a, a seat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Watch us now. <laughs> the seat. Mic drop. Mic drop. Right. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Because, uh, I think um, I love that. I'll pick up on the seat. Mm. My fight has been uh, getting a table at the, uh, getting a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. That's been my angle. Um, I've had to be brave rather than up the, being exhausted of not getting the roles that I like and not mm -hmm. seeing uh, stories that I want to be in. And just not about me, but other people. I then had to kind of um, be brave. It wasn't a natural thing for me, but I had to be brave and start applying for stuff, mm -hmm. put my name forward for things. So I applied to do a development program, to become a developer, which means to be behind the scenes, to be at the table where characters are being decided in the mm -hmm. writer's room, where the, where in the beginning of things. Um, so that's been my avenue has been like, guess what Esther and I both doing producing mm -hmm. and creating our own shows. But for me, the step further, because I used to work in distribution, uh, where distribution where people buy and sell content. So I've seen all the way to the end when people are pitching and selling a show before it's even made or after it's made. Um, it's not personal. It's just literally financial to your point why they want you to pick those people because everyone's trying to make money at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So having seen that, I was like, well, how can I take that skill set? I want to get a seat at the table. So for me, it's no longer about the acting. It's now more for me. My journey is all about, it's about my legacy. Mm. And my legacy has been now, okay, so how do I do a placement here and internship. So I've been doing, um, so there's been months where I've take I've said no to acting roles and I've done placements. So mm -hmm. I did a placement in the BBC studios, did it Amazon, did it Screen Australia, where I'm just focusing strictly just on writing. I'm focusing mm -hmm. on developing. I'm focusing on who gets to get hired for certain kind of um, creative decision jobs. Mm -hmm. That's been my way of trying to get more upskilled mm -hmm. that way because that's the you know, otherwise right now there, there isn't any. Um, the, the only hope I feel we have at the moment, what's exciting are the streamers coming in. Mm. So having Paramount, Disney, Roku, Amazon, um, those teams have a lot of diverse people on their teams. Mm -hmm. So that's what's been exciting because they, they insist on diverse casting because they, they're casting internationally and also behind and as well on screen. Mm. If it's just our own Australian streamers and broadcasters, It'll be another two decades. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Did you want to say? I anything? do. Um, so for me, my approach is is different. For me, I'm I'm about building a table. I'm about mm. because I grew up watching digital, watching YouTube, mm. seeing people creating their own audiences. And I think this might be my marketing, my marketing brain. Mm. So we what's what has changed the world is the amount of access we have to TikTok, mm -hmm. Instagram, YouTube. The, the digital world has changed things for acting. 
you don't you you don't really need to have a big production company or a big producer believe in your project because now you have direct access to an audience mm. and that is the power like if you can create something and connect with an audience you have the power to then create more so like mm. i'm i think i think i think this is the best time for creators to create because we can reach people and that audience is what brings in the money like mm. if you look at these tiktokers some 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 of some of them sit in their room just vlogging their diary and then they're getting brand deals they're working with people they're ending up in tv shows and movies because they have an audience and so i think that's the power that we have to tap into that's what i think that's a big part of why the series ended up on youtube we were able to create a big audience that wasn't an australian audience mm -hmm. like the australian view viewership was pretty small but the the people that came through were the us the the caribbeans South Africa, the UK, they came through and they showed up. And because we had like 80,000 80, plus people watching, now Screen Australia is like, do, are you guys interested in doing a second season? And we're like, yes, <laughs> we would love to. So I think um, there's a big opportunity and a lot of resources that we have to be able to create our own tables and not rely on the methods that have been relied on in the past. <laughs> So, so good. Thank you so much. And now for my final two cents. Uh, we just heard, yeah, these really insightful ways of thinking about how we create. And as I was prepping to come today, I was thinking about when we go and our loved ones gather or they make a flyer for our funerals or our farewells, what two words would we want them to put on there that sum up our life or our legacies or what we did? So it's just a thing to reflect on. You don't have to answer now. You don't have to even know. But it had me thinking about maybe that's the thing we're working towards and maybe that's the thing that can drive us forward. And for me, I keep thinking I'd, I'd love people to say I loved people. Mm. So what does my love of people look like? For me, it looks like bringing people together, connecting people and sharing what I'm learning so that you can shine too. And now I really getting goosebumps. I, I think I'm on my path. And it's, it's amazing how things are coming together. So my encouragement to you is, um, Whatever it is that you want to make, uh, I think, yeah, I think you can make it. And I'm not just being like, oh, you can make it. I think if you, if you really listen to yourself and you let yourself not, not, um, not judge yourself, mm. I think you too will say you made it. Mm. Thank you for being in this show. I'm Taku Mbuzi. This has been Two Words with Taku, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye. I made it. DJ, play my happy song so I can dance. <laughs> You've just been listening to the very first live, in-person podcast recording for this show, Two Words with Taku. We've had more events since and we've got more to come both in person and also virtually. So it doesn't really matter where you are. Subscribe to the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps and also subscribe to the newsletter and join our community at twowordswithtaku.substack.com. 
We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. So look for Two Words with Taku and you'll definitely find us and all our stories. See you there.